It really is nice um, when someone says, I'll be praying for you. Uh, we like to hear that. It's nice. Um, but here's the thing, and maybe this is just a, I'm, I'm just a cynical guy. Uh, we can, that phrase can sometimes become like Christian jargon that we, we throw around, like things like, I'll be praying for you. Right? And, and you're going to go, oh, I, wonder, I wonder if they're really going to pray for me, or is it just, you know, after a conversation, you've shared something, don't know how to respond, and I might, might say, I'll, I'll be praying for that, or I'll be praying for you. But you know what's, what's kind of a bit more special and nice is when people actually tell you, um, you know, when they prayed for you. It's a bit more specific, they prayed, you know, when. Or how about, and this is when you really know the prayer was genuine and that they did, they tell you specifically what they had what they prayed for you. Uh, for example, I got a message uh, a couple of weeks ago from a pastor friend of mine. I think some people here might know him. Uh, Blakehurst Baptist, Gray McWhorter. Um, he sent me a message uh, one morning, and he said, you know, I was praying for you this morning. And more than that, he kind of went, was really specific, and he told me specifically what he had been praying for me and for my family. And I was like, oh, man, that, is, that was such an encouragement to receive that text message, that morning, and to know that even for a moment, someone had me on their mind, that even for a moment, that moment, I was taken into the throne room of God through his prayers. Massive encouragement. But now, as special as it is to have a pastor friend of mine pray for me like that, what if it was Jesus who was the one letting you know that he's going to pray for you that way? And that he prayed for you that way. And more than that, if Jesus was to say, well, here is specifically how I prayed for you and how I'm going to pray for you. And to know that for that moment, again, man, especially special. I, I covered your prayers. But how special to know that Jesus Christ himself in that moment has you and I on his heart and on his mind, man, really taking us directly into the throne room of God through his prayers. How special would that be? And if we think about that, man, we don't need to imagine how special it would be because this is exactly what this passage this morning is all about. Jesus praying for us specifically and through this prayer, through his prayer for each one of us, like, I'm going to get to this isn't this isn't an overstretch to say that he had you and me in mind today to know that we get a glimpse into what he most desires for us today as his church. Think about this for a second. Imagine if we if we if Jesus was to come here today. He was to come to our service and we and I was to say Jesus could you come up to the front and pray for Alawa church? What do you think he'd pray for Alawa church? More, more numbers, church growth, that our finances would improve, maybe, but probably most likely he would repeat this same prayer that he prayed back then for us. He would just come and pray for it for us again. Alawa church. If you this morning would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you can be encouraged this morning knowing that he prayed for you specifically and he had this prayer in mind. 
think we've got the passage up on the screen. Follow along again as we, as we read through just a portion of this prayer. We started it last week, got a portion this week. We're going to finish off in a couple of weeks. This is Jesus' prayer. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I was tempted to go in a whole other direction here because there's there's a lot of theology even in that one sentence. Does he not um, consider the world? Does Jesus not care about the world? Is he intentionally leaving the world out of this prayer? Those that you have given me, therefore are there those in the world that God doesn't give Jesus? We could open a whole can of worms and I'd love to have that chat with anyone who would like to go there. God's sovereign election. But for now, let's continue. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, who we know as being Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Man, there is obviously a lot of themes that we could unpack here. We're going to come back to some of these themes like I just said. For example, this passage is often kind of used in reference to unity, right? That Jesus prays for the church, all Christians, throughout all time to be unified. We're going to get to that the week after Easter. But for now, let me tell you where we're headed. And I'll tell you where we're headed with two simple points. Really simple. Two things. Something Jesus doesn't pray for and something Jesus does pray for. And the two things we're going to be looking at. Something Jesus doesn't pray for. Something Jesus does pray for. Firstly, notice what he doesn't pray for there in verse 15. We can show that slide. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 15. Jesus prays for our protection, right? He's praying for our safekeeping. Specifically, who is he wanting us to be protected from? The evil one. Okay, who we know to be Satan, the devil. I I often say this, full disclosure, we believe that Satan is a real being. He's not just someone or something that we've, we've made up, figment of our imagination, someone to blame for all the bad things that we do. No, he's real. He's real. In fact, he's real and he's dangerous. And he hates you. 
He hates Christians, always has, always will. He knows his time is over. Victory has been won. He's defeated, and so he hates his children. He's trying to take as many with us as he can. In the Bible, he's described as a roaring lion, prowling around seeking someone to devour. And so, yeah, do we desperately need Jesus' prayer of protection from Satan? We do. We do. But notice that Jesus doesn't protect us by removing us from out of this world. No, he very intentionally leaves us in the world. You know what he doesn't pray for? He doesn't pray for our removal. He's leaving us in the world. And this, in my opinion, is where I believe many Christians throughout the history of the church, and with good intentions, mind you, where many Christians have perhaps not only misunderstood Jesus' mission to the world and in the world, but they've kind of misunderstood how vital our role is, your role in, my, in that mission. Think of, um, think of uh, some of the early Christians. Think of, think of how the Christian monks started, for example. You know the word monk? Uh, actually, it comes from like this, this Greek word that means monos. Any idea what that, you know, that, that word means? Mono, one, alone, right? And so these Christian monks started off by, by living this kind of monk lifestyle, out alone in the wilderness. Um, monasteries, right? That's how they started. Because these monks who were living on their own out in the wilderness, they started to pick up on other monks who were doing the same thing. And so they gathered together and they formed these monasteries. And we know the basic idea behind this. They're, they're wanting to withdraw from the world, withdraw from society. And the goal of withdrawing was, was what? So they wouldn't look like the world? So they wouldn't be tempted by all the temptation and the pleasures and the indulgences that the world throws at us, and so they withdraw. They live very basically, strict regimes and, and rigorous self-discipline for the purpose, like I said, good intentions, of trying to keep themselves as pure so that they can please God. The intentions were good. It's just that being removed from the world just isn't how Jesus wanted them to live, right? Based on what he's saying here. Straight out, simple. It's not how Jesus wants us to live. Removed, withdrawn. Why? Here's why. Because how can the world see and observe how Christians should live? How can the world see how Christians are to love one another? How Christians are to treat each other and to treat the world when there's no Christians in the world around living amongst them to show them. If there are no Christians in the world, well, then how on earth is the world going to know, hey, there's nothing better than, than following Jesus? How is the, how is the world going to know, hey, this is what a Christian is. I want to become one. If I can use, and I should have asked him beforehand, but he's usually okay with these things. If I can use China as an example, I hope he's okay with that. If not, you can deal with it, right? If I can use China as an example, because and and, we were talking about this just yesterday as we were driving back from the men's conference. Imagine if China 
decided to work out at home, right? Instead of at fitness first. Because he thought, you know, gyms are a sinful place where all those pagans go out and where they go and work out. Right? Imagine that was his mindset. Well, then he would, he would never have met James. Okay, we're getting very real and raw. He would never have met James. And, and James would never have got to observe in China what it's like to live as a young Christian man in this world without being removed from it. Perhaps James wouldn't have started coming back to church if China didn't see that every part of life, even his working out, was an opportunity to share and to show Christ. It's a very simple point that Jesus is making. He makes it throughout the whole Bible. Man, I wish we had time to do a case study on young Daniel from the Old Testament. It's a very simple point we see throughout the whole Bible. Be in the world, but not of the world. Be in the world, just just don't be made up of the substance of the world. Be in the world, just don't conform to the world and its values and its morals and its genders. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Peter puts it this way, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had back when you lived in ignorance. Simply, he's saying, hey, you remember how you used to live back when you became a Christian, before you became a Christian? Back when you belonged to the world, those evil desires, those selfish desires, even perhaps those lustful desires, hey, leave those back where they belong. In the past and in the world. You know why? Because these don't characterize you anymore. Instead, now in Christ, my spirit is in you. And notice the kind of things my spirit are now going to produce in you. Love, peace, joy, generosity, self-sacrifice, holiness. Qualities that the world so desperately needs at the moment. Qualities that the world needs to be seeing played out in us. Or else how will they know? So that they too would believe. That's the goal. That's the goal. The glory of God, the spread, the advancement of the gospel. Be in the world, not of the world. Jesus doesn't pray that we would be removed out of the world. Instead, you know what he does pray? And this is our second point. So this is going to be a simple outline. What he doesn't pray for and what he does pray for. Instead, he prays for our holiness. He prays for our holiness. You see, how do we stay in the world? Getting real practical now. How do we stay in the world without conforming to it, without conforming to its patterns? Jesus knew it wouldn't be easy, and so he prays for our holiness. Look at verse 16. Verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He prays for our sanctification. I know that's a big kind of theological word, sanctification. It's another way of saying holiness. He prays for, he prays for our holiness. Now before, okay, you hear that word, here we go. Okay, before we get too concerned about great, another sermon about Christians having to be holy, because sometimes that word holy can be used in a negative way. 
right? My, my, my son often says, Dad, you think you're so holy, don't you? Right? Okay, but that's, that's kind of not the kind of sense that he's wanting to, to get to here. It's not in a negative sense. It's more in a way of kind of trying to understand this word holy, sanctify. They're, they're words that are interchangeable. Let's think about holiness through this word sanctify. And we'll see to sanctify, to be sanctified, is actually another simple concept to understand. Think about this for a second. And this includes all of us here this morning in one way or another to help us understand this word sanctify. We all, this morning, in one way or another, we all sanctified a whole bunch of things just in order to get ready to come to church this morning. All right, stay with me. For example, to give my kids breakfast, I grabbed a bowl from amongst all the other bowls, and I set it apart as I grabbed the cereal, grabbed the milk, in order to give them breakfast. That bowl was set apart and sanctified for a specific use. That's what sanctified means, to be set apart for a specific use. On a Saturday night, maybe a Sunday morning, I sanctify one of my shirts because I grab it from amongst all the other shirts for a specific use to be used on on, on a Sunday. If you, this morning or throughout the week, gave some of your money to the offering and to the church, you sanctified that money. You set that money apart for God and for a specific purpose, that the church would use it to further its work. That's what it means for something to be sanctified, set apart. And so therefore, Jesus has this same idea in mind for us. Belonging to Jesus means that we have been set apart from amongst everyone else in the world and set apart for a specific purpose, to be Christ's representative in this world, to advance the spread of the gospel, to continue the mission that he started. And so that's one sense that we're sanctified in our salvation. We have been set apart, given to Jesus. But then there is a a second element, because Jesus, he prays for our sanctification. It seems ongoing. There's There's a sense that our sanctification is an ongoing process that continues while we're in this world. So the question is, how then, or what does Jesus have in mind here when he says to be sanctified and set apart from the world. He tells us, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What separates us from the world is that we, disciples, Christians, those given to Jesus, we we actually believe that God's word is true. It's truth. And therefore, we seek to live by it. That's what separates us. This is how it was all the way back from the beginning, the time of Moses, the time of the Old Testament. We think, or at least a lot of us think, or we grew up thinking this, that all of the laws in the Old Testament that God gives the Jews, we, you know, we think that's so God can keep them in line. 
when really the purpose of the law was to set them apart from the nations. That that would be different so that the world around them could see what their God was really like. You see, all of the laws of the Old Testament, they really are just a reflection of God's character, a reflection of his attributes. Think about this for a second, where it says, do not kill. Why? Well, because your God is a, he's a life-giving God. So follow him. Do not kill. Do not lie. Why? Well, because your God is a God of truth. Do not commit adultery. Why? Well, because your God, he is a covenant-keeping God who remains faithful always. Follow him. Do not steal. Why? Because God, your God is a generous God who will provide all of your needs. Follow him. And we could, we could go on with literally all of the laws in the Old Testament and show how they point to the character of God. And in the same way today, for us Christians in Christ, in the new covenant, although we don't follow the laws of the Old Testament in the same way as the Jews, God still expects that his word be what separates us from the world. Sanctify them in truth. And I was thinking of a few examples in the New Testament where this is true. How Christians are to be different. Think about some, these are, these are some commands, some laws, some instructions from the New Testament. Flee from all forms of sexual immorality. Because that's, that's the world's value. Do not love money. Because the world loves money and then the love of money leads to all kinds of evil. Do not take revenge. The world's all about revenge. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not think of yourself. This, this is a hard one. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to, which is hey, it's what the world's promoting all the time. You're number one. Look out for yourself first. You see, the point is the more and more that we conform to the word of God, the less and less is kind of this natural progression. The less and less we're going to conform to the world. It's, it's a simple equation. It's, it's like that um, illustration or that image or that picture that I'm sure we've all seen. You know, we use it at youth group or with the kids. You take a glass of dirty water, a jug of clean water. You pour that clean water into that glass of dirty water. And with time, it's going to happen. That dirty glass of water is it's being filtered. It's going to get clean. The more and more we conform to the word of God, the less and less you will conform and look like the world. Hey, it's, it's a pretty simple point. That's what it means to be sanctified in truth. And just thinking about this a little bit more practically now, especially given the cultural climate that we're living in at the moment, it's almost like Jesus' prayer is more urgent, more needed than ever. I mean, think about this. Where biblical literacy, even amongst Christians, is like a, maybe at an all-time low. Even, you know, Christians knowing who read and study and, and know even... I don't know if you remember a few years ago we did that series, Forgotten Books of the, of the New Testament. And I videoed, you know, the young people. And I asked them a simple question. Tell us the order of the New Testament books from start to finish. I think one of them got to Romans, perhaps. 
right? You know, it's this, it's this biblical, biblical illiteracy. We, we, we need this prayer to be answered more and more urgently that they would know the truth to be sanctified in it. In a climate where the world is seeking to remove the Bible and Scripture classes from our schools, in a world where the Word of God is under attack from maybe uni professors or scholars or prominent atheists, or even where like anyone with a camera and a YouTube channel now kind of thinks they're wiser than God, attacking the Bible. I mean, even in churches, Christians are giving into the world's interpretation of God's truth written in the Bible. Think about this for a second. You may hear, I don't know if you've heard Christians say things like this. Same-sex marriage, it's about love. God is love. So therefore, the, the Bible can't mean what it says. We have a choice. Take on their interpretation. Hey, or am I going to actually find out what, what the Word of God says and means? I'll give you... One more example, and, and perhaps this is a bit more controversial and a bit more in-house. Well, maybe I should backtrack and not go there because you know, if you've got any, any qualms with this, hey, let's have this discussion. We will. But the point is we need to know the truth if we're going to be sanctified. We need to know it. We need to study it. We need to understand its meaning. You might hear Christians say things like, Man, the world has come too far with regards to women's rights. And so therefore, the Bible can't mean what it says with regards to women not being pastors and women not being elders and women not preaching. Man, the world has moved on. And so the church must move on in order to stay relevant. Now, Here's a challenge I would leave with anyone stuck on this issue of women's role in the church or stuck on any of these issues, whatever it is. Any issue perhaps you're struggling with conforming to the word of God. Here's a challenge. If you can make the case from the Bible of why women should be pastors, of why women should be preachers, well, then I will sit down with you and I will listen and I will be willing to have my views changed. But come to me with an open Bible. Come to me having read and studied the Bible. Don't point me to some book or some blog or some article or with arguments from culture or society. Come to me with the Bible because that's where the truth is found. So we need to be asking, are we willing to be sanctified, set apart, as much as the world will hate us, as Jesus says, the world's going to hate you because I've given you my word. Are we willing to go there for the sake of keeping God's word and being sanctified by it, being set apart to look different by it? That's what Jesus is saying here. It's the word of God that will separate us from the world. Conclusion to end, friends. We have an opportunity here, massive opportunity. Jesus doesn't pray to take us out of the world. He prays to leave us in the world, set us apart with a purpose. He's given us a purpose, 
purpose in life. He's given us, and I don't know about you, that should, that should be appealing to you, especially as humans, to know Jesus actually gives us a purpose in life to be here. I reckon all of us as humans recognize we need purpose. We need meaning. We're kind of mission-orientated people anyway. Think about those campaigns we see on TV or on the website. We're going to change the world, right? And you might hear them say things like, we need you to help us change the world. And what do we do as consumers? We get excited by it. We volunteer, we give our money, we come on board. Why? Because it's kind of innate in us. We, we want to feel like our life has meaning and purpose and significance. Give us a life mission. We'll come. We'll do it. Um, I thought it was interesting that studies have shown that in nursing homes, if you give the residents there at a nursing home a plant or a pet you know, something to feed or to look after, apparently their life expectancy goes up and they become healthier. The number of drugs they need to use goes down. Why? Because now they have purpose. They have meaning. They have a mission. And that kind of symbolizes just how mission-orientated we are as humans. So Jesus, knowing what we're like, he comes along and he says, well, then I have the ultimate mission for you. I will truly give your lives meaning and purpose. And you know what? I'm not only going to make promises of changing the world like some of these organizations do. I'm literally going to change the world. And that's what he does. And you can be part of that mission. And Jesus says, come with me. And we'll not only tackle world hunger and poverty. Yeah, we can tackle those things. But you come with me on this mission. And we're going to tackle what the world desperately does need. There's spiritual hunger. There's spiritual poverty. See, organizations, as great as they are, and they are great, but they can only save lives for a limited time. Jesus says, you can have eternal life. Come with me. We'll save lives for all eternity. Come, help me literally change the world. I'll end with this story, and it's a, it's a story that we heard from um, one of the conference speakers yesterday at the men's conference. You see, this guy, Jared Wilson, he, he told this story of a friend of his who died of a malignant brain tumor. Friend, he's a young guy, 32 years old. And this friend of his, while he was alive, and while he could still kind of put his thoughts together and talk and, and, and talk to Jared, whenever he was with Jared, he would keep reminding him, don't forget to preach at my funeral. Every time, every opportunity, Jared, preach at my funeral. Preach the gospel at my funeral. Because he knew that there'd be many unbelievers there. And he hoped, he hoped that some would believe. Even in his suffering, this, this young man, even in his final moments, he had them in mind, those who would believe. And so he's like, Jared, make sure you preach the gospel at my funeral. You see, this guy, he's so desired that his suffering, even his death, would be leveraged in such a way that not only that God would be glorified, but that the gospel would go out and be spread and continue on 
through Jared, who wasn't leaving. His friend was leaving, but Jared wasn't leaving. He was continuing on the mission that this guy had started. And this really is a picture of what Jesus is praying for his disciples here. He's praying, God, leverage my suffering. God, leverage my death to bring you glory. But also that the gospel would be spread, the mission continue through these men, the 11, but through these men and women today. His prayer is for us. In this prayer thousands of years ago, he had us on his heart, on his mind. He brings us directly into the throne room of God, and this is specifically what he asks. Father, leave them. It's going to be hard. So therefore, I pray that you sanctify them through your word, because your word is true.